Derek Cholet is the counselor of the State Department, where he serves as one of Secretary Blinken's most senior policy advisors. During the Obama administration, Derek served in a number of national security roles at the State Department, Defense Department, and the White House. Derek has been on our show before, and he joins us today to talk about the Biden administration's approach to the full range of important national security issues facing our country. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Derek, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It's uh, great to have you on the show again. Great to be back with you, Michael. So obviously, Derek, there's a ton to talk about. Lots going on in the world, and we want to get to that. But we are called Intelligence Matters, and given that, I wanted to ask you about the intelligence you consume, right? Obviously, you do that. I, I assume you do that. Yeah. <laughs> I yes, assume you I do that. A, I'm um, a loyal and, and voracious consumer. Excellent. And I wanted to ask you how you do that. Do you have a briefer who comes to see you every day? Do you just get a package and do you go through it? You know, how do you consume it? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And um, I'm sincere when I say I'm a vigorous consumer of intelligence. I get a briefing book every day that's on an iPad. And when you were cool. back in your old job, it was a uh, sort of state of the art to put it on an iPad. I think it's yeah. becoming a lot more common, which is really user-friendly and easy. And, but then I also get it uh, the old school way. I also get hard copy of, of a, another uh, a binder that's done by INR, the mm-hmm. Intelligence and Research Bureau here at the State Department, which is the State Department's arm in the intelligence community. And in uh, the, the iPad, I get the PDB, the Presidential Daily Brief, that is a version of what the Secretary Blinken gets, my boss. And so, obviously, it's important for those yes. of us who work closest with him to kind of have a sense of everything that he's seeing, or nearly everything that he's seeing, because, of course, I don't see everything he sees. But And then throughout the day, I'll get updates either on particular issues that I'm following. And so, you know, whether it's pegged to a trip that I'm going to be doing or an issue set that I'm working on intensively, I'll get an additional packet of intelligence based on that. Because, you know, typically when I'm involved in a particular negotiation, there's no amount of material that's too much in some right. ways. I want right. to know as much right. as I can. So, and then I, and then I also have, a, have a, a human being that will come by usually twice a week. It's actually the same briefer that Secretary Blinken uh, has and other senior officials here at the department 
he'll swing by a couple days a week and we'll go over any material that I might have missed. Or it's also, again, as you know well, someone who lives uh, this stuff to just get his or her perspective on pieces that he thought were particularly useful, interesting, or we're getting a lot of attention within the IC just to give me a little situational awareness on, yeah. on some of the pieces. Also gives you an opportunity to ask questions. and I ask and, tons of questions. Yeah, and dive deep. As you right. know, sometimes sort of the backstory on particular pieces is really interesting and useful to know. And just, yeah. You know, particularly ones that are saying something particularly provocative or, you know, analytically interesting, just kind of unpacking those a bit and understanding a little bit of how the sausage got made is really helpful. Yeah. All right, let's let's dive into the world here and let's let's start with the obvious issue which is Russia Ukraine. We're coming up on the 1 year anniversary and my first question Derek is really an analytic one, uh, not a policy one. Where do you think we stand at this point in the war a year in now from a strategic perspective? So, I think stepping back and thinking about where we were a year ago and where we thought things were going, you know, exactly a year ago today, we were, you know, three days out and pretty much within the, within the zone of nearly any hour we were right. thinking that the war would begin. I think there was a, there was a widely held view that, that the war would be extremely tough for the Ukrainians, just given the numbers game. Right. I mean, there was no question. I think that the Ukrainians were going to fight like hell, but just that the superior firepower on the Russian side would prove overwhelming. And, Certainly, that's what Vladimir Putin thought, and he thought by week one he would be largely in control of Kiev. Well, of course, he totally failed at that. And so, I think from a strategic point of view, a couple of things. I think in many ways, Russia's already faced a strategic defeat yeah. in terms of what yeah. it was trying to do uh, in Ukraine, whether it's the uh, slow decoupling we have seen between Russia and Europe when it comes to energy. I mean, if you think about it, it's a project that was decades in the making to have this first Soviet Union and then Russia be Europe's chief energy supplier. And we see that being dismantled largely in, in the course of the last year to the tremendous setbacks the Russian military's face. There's estimated 200,000 Russian uh, military personnel either killed or wounded in action. You've seen a flight of private sector companies from US and Europe you know head for the exits in right. Russia around 95% of Russia's ground forces are currently employed in some fashion in and around Ukraine NATO is stronger today its budgets are up we're, we're on the cusp of having Sweden and Finland join the alliance which was not something that was on our to-do list at the beginning of last year and I think Russia is increasingly isolated in the world. And, you know, you'll, we'll see another demonstration of that uh, this week in New York at the United Nations when foreign ministers, including Secretary Blinken, will get together to talk about this first year of the Ukraine war. So, look, it's a, it's a tough fight. And Russia controls 20% roughly of Ukraine's territory. But Ukraine is getting stronger. And I have been heartened to see the resilience and strength, first and foremost, of the Ukrainian people and their military, but also of the international coalition that has been put together to help support Ukraine. And I think if you and I, a year ago, were talking and said that after the first year, there'd be over nearly $30 billion in U.S. security assistance had been provided to Ukraine, uh, and that's matched by nearly the same amount by the 50-some countries that are contributing one way or another to Ukraine's defense in addition to the United States, that we would have seen the resilience in the international community 
and that Europe would have, you know, basically helped engineer, not only impose sanctions, but then engineer this uh, largely cut off of Russia in terms of energy. I would have thought that would have been the, the kind of outer edge of what could have been accomplished. So now we've just got to stick to it, I think. And the basic lines of effort that were put in place a year ago remain, which is to punish and isolate Russia, make it harder for Russia to conduct this fight by choking off its resources and isolating it, by second to strengthen Ukraine and to ensure that Ukraine, as best we can, has the means at its disposal to defend itself and regain territory and put itself in a position where we can have a just and durable peace. And then third, to ensure that our commitments to our NATO partners and and the strength of the NATO alliance and this larger effort to support Ukraine remains strong. And so that's kind of the basic framework we have been operating under over the last year. And I think that's how we're going to continue into this next year. Great. Derek, I want to ask you three questions that many of my listeners ask me. And the first is, why is the outcome of this war, you know, so important to America? I have an answer for that, right? And I believe that, you know, President Biden ran on a platform of a foreign policy for the middle class. And so give me the, the administration's, you know, answer to that question for, say, the people of Akron, Ohio, where I grew up, right? Why is this important to them? Well, I mean, look, what Russia has been doing, what it's trying to do, it violates the fundamental principle of international politics. And it goes to the heart of the United Nations Charter, which is that states should have a right and must have a right to their sovereignty and independence and to be able to choose their own destiny. And that if Russia is allowed to succeed and be able to not just change a border by force, but try to change a country by force, then no nation can be safe if this kind of aggression goes unchecked. And that's why whatever peace that is possible, and of course, we we sincerely hope we can have peace and that this war ends soon, that that peace be just and that it's Russia is not rewarded in any way for what it's been doing. And by the way, it's not just gobbling up territory or trying to gobble up territory. It's also, as President Biden was clear this week in his speech in, in Poland, conducting crimes against humanity. Right. We've seen this repeatedly over the course of last year, the deliberate targeting of civilians, the attempt to take down Ukraine's energy grid, which is trying to basically terrorize the Ukrainian population. I mean, this is the largest conflict Europe has seen since the Second World War. And the United States, along with our allies and partners in Europe and elsewhere around the world, and I think what's notable about this is we have Asian partners stepping up and contributing in some way to this effort to help defend Ukraine, as well as as, as partners elsewhere in the world that are doing their part. Not everyone's doing the same thing, but are doing their part to help Ukraine. This is why it's so important. And I have to say, you know, Michael, I, I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I have been struck as I've traveled around the country over the last year a bit to see how widespread the support for Ukraine is in the United States and just how you see Ukrainian flags pop up all around the country. It's not just something that's a Washington, D.C. thing, because I think everyone understands the kind of basic facts here that there really isn't a neutral position that is possible when it comes to a war of aggression. You just can't take, you know, away somebody's territory. You just can't do that. And it's just, and I think we have to be very clear to differentiate here who is the aggressor and who is the victim. 
this war could end tomorrow if Vladimir Putin decided to pull his troops out of Ukraine. If Russia stops fighting, the war ends. But the, the hard reality is if Ukraine stops fighting, then Ukraine ends. Right. And that's, that's, you know, that's the fundamental challenge we're dealing with here. And I can say, we, I sit in the State Department. I work for the Secretary of State. We tried very hard to prevent this conflict from happening, to try to test whether there was some way that we could stop what was so obvious in terms of Russia's troop buildup when Vladimir Putin was trying to do up until a year ago. Unfortunately, that didn't work. And unfortunately, over the last year, we have seen nothing to suggest that Putin is interested moving off his maximalist objectives, which are to completely subjugate and control Ukraine. And he repeat, he gave a big speech here today, Tuesday in Moscow. And he it was an hour and a half long speech where he touched on a lot of issues, but it, again, repeated the same sort of lies about Ukraine, which just so shows a fundamental misunderstanding he has about the Ukrainian people in that country. The second question people ask me is what what are the objectives of the United States, right? What do, what do we want here? Is it the Russians, you know, totally out of Ukraine? Is it, or is it just what the Ukrainians want? You know, if they are willing to go to the negotiating table, we're with them. You know, when you're sitting in the sit room, right, what's the policy objective here? Well, again, fundamentally, it's allowing Ukraine, as it defines it, to regain its sovereignty and territory. We were kind of guided by several basic precepts here. First, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. And particularly a year ago, but still popping up now and then in the discussion, there's, you know, we're told, why don't you just go talk to the Russians and cut a deal? Right. This fight is not about us. Russia invaded Ukraine. So we're not going to decide for the Ukrainians what their future is. And at the same time, and these are the other precepts we're guided by, we don't, we can't be more Ukrainian than Ukrainians. We want to be less Ukrainian than Ukrainians. We want a Ukraine that is democratic, that is uh, viable, that a peace in which it engages in can be durable. So we're just not sort of, you know, dealing with the same set of issues 10 years from now, right? And it's important and your, your wise listeners will remember that it was 2014 when yep. we were dealing with the first incursion, Russian yep. incur- military incursion into Ukraine, which led to the illegal annexation of Crimea. So we just don't want to be back in the same situation 10 years from now. So that's why a peace needs to be both just. In other words, Putin can't be rewarded for what he's doing. And it also needs to be durable. And that's got to be something that sticks. But when it comes to the specifics of how a deal may come, might come to fruition or what the contours may look like, that's not for us to decide. And President Zelensky has said himself repeatedly, wars end by negotiation. Russia has shown no no interest to have a a legitimate, sincere negotiation in any way. And in fact, Putin has said, I'll happy to negotiate Russia as a precondition for any talks with the Ukrainians. They would have to accept that we are we now own the territory we have thus far taken, which is not not an indication of a particularly serious negotiation. But so our view is that therefore the best we can do is ensure that Ukraine is in the best possible position it can when t- the time were to come to enter negotiation. And that means having a Ukraine that can defend itself and a Ukraine that has the ability to take back territory that, that Russia has tried to take away from it. And then the third question, Derek, is why does there seem to be sort of a no-yes dynamic to the decision-making on weapon systems, right? One day we're no on tanks, the next day we're sending them. Is it because 
the situation on the ground is changing? Is it because we have a coalition of allies that we need to hold together and therefore make decisions with that in mind? Is it because our assessment of the escalation risk is changing? You know, how should my listeners think about what we're seeing on that front? Well, I think it's all of the above, but also based on Ukraine's needs and what they can use quickly here. And it, again, if you we were to step back a year ago from where the conversation was prior to the invasion, when we were already beginning to ramp up our security assistance to Ukraine, and that, of course, has just dialed up exponentially in the last year. But a year ago, it was all about getting them stingers, you know, shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missiles, to then to javelins, uh, anti-tank missiles, to uh, uh, then um, you know, armored personnel vehicles, then uh, sophisticated air defense like Patriots, uh, and now tanks. Um, so this has been a, a kind of a constant conversation we've been having the Ukrainians, both in terms of their own needs and what they can use, um, as well as also what's available. And this one of the things we have done, in addition to providing $30 billion uh, of our own assistance to Ukraine, is been working with allies and partners all around the world to try to rustle up equipment that they can use quickly. So early a year ago, starting a year ago, it was all about Russian-made or Soviet-made systems that allies and partners had in their stockpiles that could get to the Ukrainians in short order that they did need to get trained on. It was just a supply issue. Now, of course, we're talking about systems like M1A1 tanks that require training. So that's one consideration, but also just as the battlefield has, has changed. Now, and I, I, w- I would say it's probably, Michael, more the debate, the external debate make, creates a perception that it's a no yes, but I would say it's more of an evolving conversation than, you know, gotcha. uh, we say no and then it's yes. It's kind of a constant kind of triaging of what's available, what they need, what the training pipeline looks like, and you know, and also alliance management. And I, and I think one of the, one of the things that I feel like um, has gone in a way that, that we're quite happy with thus far, although it takes constant work and tending to, is this establishment of such a robust coalition of countries. And, and I can't think of a precedent in the, in the last 30 years uh, other than what we did in the, in the lead up and the execution of the Persian Gulf War, 1990, 1991, in terms of building such a broad, vast coalition of countries that are contributing to this to this effort to help support Ukraine. And obviously, countries are going to make different decisions based on their own needs, based on their own politics and, and their own assessments. It's not for us to decide what particular countries are doing. And we often are getting asked and try to get sort of dragged into the debates of other countries about what they're doing or not doing. Mm. Our position has been consistent, which is we think everyone should do as much as they possibly can, but it's not for us to make the judgment for them on what they're going to do. But of course, we're coordinating really closely. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Derek Chalet. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? 
In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. So those are the questions that my listeners, you know, ask me. Here's the question I want to ask you, which is about Western resolve, right? So President Biden in the state of his State of the Union address, you know, very strong. Um, I think the quote here is America will stand with you as long as it takes. The president was just in Kiev, just gave a very strong speech um, in Poland that you noted earlier. Vice President Harris just gave a very strong speech in Munich, you know, calling out the Russians for war crimes. You know, all of that shows American resolve, right? But there's just this sense, right, in that at least, you know, outside of government that you read in the paper that there's some sort of timeline here. I think the Washington Post, I think it was after the State of the Union was actually, uh, there was a senior administration official who was quoted as saying, you know, there's timeline here on how much we can give and how long we can give, right? So there's just this sense, and I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's what people are seeing. So there's just this sense, right, that that this can't go on forever. And I'm just wondering, you know, from your perspective, is is that right or is that wrong? Is there some sense that it's gonna be tough to keep the coalition together for an extended period of time? Is there some sense that it's gonna be tough to keep the American people behind this? for an extended period of time, you know, how to think about that? Yeah, it's a great question. Look, I think first, we don't take anything for granted. We realize, and this is what we're doing here from the State Department, but colleagues across the government, DOD, White House, and the president, for the president on down are doing every day is ensuring that we are doing everything we can to keep this coalition strong. And that, that includes by leading by example, by doing our part, showing the world that we're stepping up in ways that's historic in terms of providing support for a country in which we are not a direct combatant in this conflict. Uh, the closest analogy I can come up with historically is Lend-Lease in the mm. early 1940s, mm. prior to our entry into World War II, just given the scale and the speed with which we're providing the, such significant security assistance. But the other thing I can say is that I feel like over the last year, plus now, the the obituary of our common resolve here and the international coalition has been written multiple times, and it's proven to be wrong, right? And I think many are surprised that Europe has stepped up in the ways that it has in terms of willingness to impose meaningful, serious sanctions, which have done real harm to European economies. That Europe's made some quite bold decisions on energy, which I think very few people... I think certainly in the debate here in the United States expected Europe to be able to make, as well as on equipment. And one can debate about the timing of some of that, that it happened too fast, too slow. But you know these issues so well. It, it's not an insignificant thing that German tanks are on their way to Ukraine. 
Last time German tanks were in Ukraine was not a happy episode no, was in not. world history, right? It was, was the wrong side of history on and, that one. Exactly. And, you know, the psychology of that country for good reason has a lot of, you know, there's a stigma to that. And they've made some brave political, they, the Germans, I think, have made some brave political decisions to step up. So this is a long way of saying, I think that whereas we don't take anything for granted, nor should we, because that's when you start to get into trouble, we could step back on this year and take gain some confidence about the sort of resilience and resolve that has been struck, shown. It's important to note as well, I think a huge amount of credit for that, if not most of the credit, needs to go to the Ukrainians. Because not just in the skill in which they have conducted themselves, and President Zelensky has been a, has been a real, you know, has been a historic figure along these lines. Just the way that he has made the case for his own country since the beginning of this war by speaking to basically every major democratic parliament around the world to an amazing visit here to Washington late last year to a triumphant visit to London and, and Brussels just a few weeks ago to hosting basically every you know world leader of consequence in in the in the coalition in Kyiv it's been remarkable but then also the skill of the Ukrainian people and the bravery and their courage that it's inspired the world and it's inspired publics. And this is another reason why I think you're seeing such resilient support is it's not just leaders of democracies out there trying to make the case for why we should care about this, even though that's really important and we'll still do that. I think, you know, common folks are watching TV or, you know, listening to podcasts or on the internet and they see reports of what Russia is doing as Ukraine. And there's just a sense that this is not right and that it's right for us, therefore, to be stepping up to support them. That said, this is a long war. This, I mean, meaning it's it's been a year. It has been a tough fight. It will continue to be tough. We want it to be over. No one wants it to be over more than the Ukrainian people. So we are constantly thinking of ways that we can put the Ukrainians in a position that they can end this war in a way that will be just and durable. But we also have to be realistic that at, as I sit here today in you know late February 2023, I don't see that around the corner. But nevertheless, we have to wake up every day and, and make that our goal. Okay, let's let's switch to China. Secretary Blinken just had what I thought was a terrific interview with Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation. You know, he um, he talked about his recent meeting with his his Chinese counterpart, um, and he said that he focused on two issues. Right, one the Chinese spy balloon, um, and the other. I want to quote here, information, this is, this is the secretary talking, information we have that there, meaning China, is considering providing lethal support to Russia. And I want to take, I'll take the balloon second, I want to take the lethal support first. It's a huge deal that the Chinese are even thinking about it, and it would be a massive deal if they actually did it. You know, I'm a little, I'm a little surprised by this, you know, because it's, my sense was that she, like President Biden, wanted to make some progress in the bilateral relationship. And so it seems odd from that perspective. And it seems odd from the perspective that they had stayed away from this, right, for a year. What's driving this on their part? What can we do to deter them? How do we think about that? So, look, again, I think it's important to take a step back. It was a year ago this month that she and Putin met before the Winter Olympics and released a epically long joint statement. Yes. <laughs> I tried to read it, but... <laughs> and I, I believe me, as someone who's had a hand in writing other joint statements, I felt for whoever the poor souls were at to draft that thing. Anyway, so... But, you know, that's famously called for a no-limits partnership. Right. 
This week, we saw Wang Yi, the senior foreign policy official in the Politburo, visit Moscow, where he talked about a rock-solid relationship between Russia and China. And, and I got to say, just, uh, you know, China has really picked the wrong horse here. And I think they are experiencing the inf- impact of that in ways that are that I'm mystified to, to, to think that they find this unexpected. But nevertheless, I think it is unexpected. The this is sort of uh, sinking like a stone in Europe, right? And yeah, Wang Yi, for sure. Before he went to Moscow, was in Munich, where he gave a very defiant speech. This before he saw Secretary Blinken. And in my view, they're completely misreading Europe, and they still profess to want to have close ties to European partners. And it's just hard to see how they can square that ambition with their full full square rhetorical support of Russia. And they do even more damage, right, if they go down the road of lethal support. No question. And look, our assessment is, and your listeners know better than anyone who could possibly be listening, that there's very little I can go into here. But our assessment is they have not yet made that decision up to this point. And they, but there are just increasing indications that this is something on their minds. And that's, that's of concern to us. It's concern to the Ukrainians. It's concern to our European partners. It's one of the reasons why we want to talk about it because, uh, you know, this is not something that they're considering to do out in the open. And I think, you know, it would be a grave mistake for them to make, and it would do nothing than further the hardship uh, inside Ukraine. And I think it would frankly make life more difficult for, for China as well. And so it's important for us to talk about it. And it would make it very difficult for the United States to move forward in any kind of positive way with the Chinese. This is true. I mean, it would, it would only add what is already a challenging moment in our relationship, only more challenging to, to state the obvious. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, let's go to the balloon part of this. And I, yes. you know, I've been talking way too much about the balloon. I'm sure so. you have. And believe me, <laughs> speaking of consumer of intelligence, I will I always remember the day when the briefer walked in my office and you know briefed me on the balloon, and I was said I had to stop him. I said, "Wait, let's go rewind Civil here. Did I, Civil did, War. I hear, did I hear you correctly? Is this what we're talking about?" So, so, so the secretary <laughs> also said to Margaret Brennan that he made it very clear to his Chinese counterpart that sending a surveillance balloon over the United States in violation of our sovereignty, in violation of international law was unacceptable, right? Must never happen again. Correct. Given my background, right, and where I spent my career, I'm wondering if we're making too much politically of this. Countries spy on each other all the time. I always found that if one gets caught spying, the best approach is to keep 
the response to that in intelligence channels so as not to constrain the decision space of leaders, right? That's been kind of the history. You know, and it really seemed to me that both President Biden and President Xi wanted to make some progress on bilateral relations in this balloon, right? Got in the way of that. And so I'm just wondering if responding in intelligence channels, you know, kicking out the senior Chinese intelligence official here in D.C., you know, would have made more sense than canceling the secretary's visit or was just or was that just not possible? Right. Given how public this was and, you know, et cetera. I think obviously it was it was the latter, meaning that it was the conditions for the secretary to have a productive visit to Beijing with the balloon traversing the United States was un, unsustainable. I mean, that was just I was going to say hanging so, over him, but hanging no. over. I mean, believe me, there were so many balloon <laughs> jokes so, around here. It's like the jokes write themselves. That that was just not. I mean, not, obviously, not, we not had, possible. We had. I mean, the secretary had had prepared for this trip uh, to China quite intensively, as intensively as he's prepared for, for any trip he had done as Secretary of State. It would have been the first secretary to visit China since I believe 2018. And obviously, this planned trip was a direct outgrowth of President Biden's meeting with President Xi in Bali last late last year, where they talked about right. the importance of right. putting guardrails on the relationship, right. establishing a floor on the relationship, various metaphors to basically try to find a way that we can manage this competition. And I, sh- I can say, Michael, it's important. Like we feel, and Secretary Blinken often says this, that he feels the responsibility and the expectation that we, the United States, will manage this relationship responsibly. He hears that from allies and partners who are not in any way naive about the the various challenges and indeed threats the PRC poses, but nevertheless wants to see this relationship managed. Right. They have to live uh, with the Chinese. They have to, absolutely. And so that's what we want to see too, a relationship that's managed responsibly. Having a surveillance balloon to collect intelligence, uh, fly over the, the United States territory, the continental United States, visible for all to see, for people to, you know, go out in their backyard and take a picture on their iPhones of a surveillance balloon is not a responsible way to manage this relationship. And the reason why it was important for Secretary Blinken to have a chance to speak face to face with Wang Yi about this in Munich was to send that message clearly, but also at the same time make clear that we still believe that given the the charge it was given to the secretary by the president and by the, coming out of the media at Bali, that obviously there are things that are important to our relationship with China, that are important to global security that we need to talk about. But there's a right time and place to do that. And given the situation with the balloon, it's, that was you know, I think, obviously the correct judgment not to move forward with the trip. And we'll see what the future holds on that. And But but the plan is for him to go at some point. No, I mean, we, we're still sorting our way through kind of how, where we how go we're going to, yeah, where we go from here. I mean, obviously we're committed to maintaining the dialogue with PRC on any number of issues and that meeting in Munich was a good example where they had a very uh, blunt and, and clear discussion about the, the balloon, but also talked about Ukraine and, and the concerns we had about right. China's position right. vis-a-vis Russia. So one last question, Derek, on China. You guys at the department just launched what you call your China House. Yes. Um, yeah. what, what will the China House do and how to think about that? Sure. It's kind of analogous to what the IC did, Michael, which you know well, on the kind of the mission centers on critical issues where it's meant to be a kind of a, to, to bring together the various parts of the department and literally have them 
co-located. So again, take a step back. When I re-entered the State Department two year, two plus years ago now at the beginning of the Biden administration, I was struck from since the last time I'd served here that China was not just something that the that the East Asia and Pacific Bureau dealt with. This was it would it touched every corner of the department, you know, from our oceans, environment and science to consular affairs to the regional people to the arms control people. And so there was a, there was a sense that we needed to be better organized to have sort of a, a more of a single purpose of, of, of our mission here. And so this is it's a bureaucratic fix to, to ensure that we're not stovepiped internally and that we're better coordinated, organized. And the first actual, the debut of China House operationally was the preparations uh, for the secretary's trip that we ended up having to postpone, but they did a terrific job kind of bringing together a whole of State Department mm-hmm. effort in trying to enhance our policymaking towards the PRC because it is such a complex and consequential relationship it was important for us to make this change. It's, it's not to say it replaces any particular part of the department. It's just, it's kind of housing it, housing this work in one place so we can be more efficient and more effective in our policymaking. Got it. Derek, let's turn quickly to Iran. Not a lot of good news here. No. Right. We have Iranian lethal assistance to the Russian war effort. We have Iranians purchasing sophisticated Russian fighter jets. We have the IAEA just saying Iran is now enriching uranium to 84%, which is obviously just below the level required for a nuclear weapon. We have the Israelis. I don't know if this is true or not. We have the Israelis just accusing the Iranians of attacking an oil tanker in the Persian Gulf. So I guess my kind of big picture question here is, what's our strategy for dealing with a country that seems perfectly prepared here to become more and more of an international pariah, because that's that's the way it seems it's going. That it's becoming an international. Yeah, pariah. yeah, yeah, kind of going well, down the North Korea road. I, I think, it, yeah, and, and under increasing stress at home as well. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, Didn't even mention that. The significant sort of variable we've seen emerge over the last year. I mean, look, Iranian behavior has only gotten worse uh, over the last two years, but I would extend it out over the last four to six years. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, whether it's measured by the pace of their nuclear progress in the nuclear program, their support for terrorists and proxies in the region, their proliferation of weapons in the region and beyond now with Russia, Ukraine, whether it's their efforts to undermine regimes that are that are friendly to us in the region, their you know, threats, direct threats, Israel attack on U.S. personnel in the region. It's only every every indicator has gotten worse over the last four to six years, I would say. And. I think what, unfortunately, there are no silver bullets here, as you know very well. Otherwise, they would have been used already. <laughs> otherwise, they would have been used long ago. Right, exactly, long ago. But I think first it starts with um, our presence. And, and you know, again, it, it, it's been said too often that the U.S. is pulling out of the Middle East or withdrawing or whatever, and none of that is true. President Biden's been very clear about that. My colleague, Brett McGurk at the White House, gave a gave a great speech that was building on President Biden's speech that he gave in Jeddah last summer. Brett gave a speech before the Atlantic Council that kind of laid out our thinking on the Middle East generally, which Iran was front and center in that discussion, which I would commend to all of your listeners. So it, so it starts with our presence to ensure that we continue to maintain a robust military presence in the region to protect our interests. Second, it's our partners in the region and ensuring that our partners, that our relationship with our partners are as resilient and strong as they can be. But then also by 
helping the, our partners' relationship with one another. And that's a project in the Arab world that's been underway for quite some time. I was part of this when I was back at the Pentagon a decade ago in terms of building the kind of the muscle tissue of cooperation between our partners and the GCC with one another. But the new factor, which is I think arguably the, the most positive thing that's happened in the region in the last several years, is the relationship between Israel and yes. uh, an increasing number of yes. its uh, Arab neighbors. And that's something that back when you and I were working together in government, we knew about the, the ties between Israel and some of our Gulf partners in particular, but it was all very quiet. It was usually quiet. stuff that right. not, neither of us would have talked about openly. Well, right. now it right. is in the open and it is in many cases thriving. And so, although that's not driven primarily by Iran, it's a, it's an, that the strength of those relationships is an important answer to the Iran issue set as well. But at the same time, we've got to continue to to, for, to work with our partners on specific issues like the Iran nuclear program. And again, we are not where we wanted to be. And the, the JCPOA, as uh, Secretary Austin Defense Secretary of Defense Austin's put it, is kind of in the deep freeze right now. But we have, over the course of our efforts in the last two years, I think, built up a stronger consensus between us and our key European allies, who are key key players in the Iran nuclear discussion, us together with them against Iran. And Iran is clearly the outlier. Iran is clearly the, the party that is not engaging constructively. And so that I think will help us in the extent of trying to, to gain leverage over them. Derek, we could talk about, you know, 25 more issues, yeah, um, exactly. but obviously, obviously you got to go back to work. you yeah, got to go back exactly. to work. So exactly. thank you very much for taking the time. You, um, this has been a terrific conversation and, um, we will do this again sometime. Always great to be with you. Thank you so much. That was Derek Cholet. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.